Yeah, that's um, the questions I came to. I was I was planning to get that. I was actually originally I was planning to come up with answers to those questions, and and I did to some degree, and I was planning to publish publish it. Um, you would um, you would be familiar with Dr. Peterson, Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Jordan Peterson has helped a lot. Me, uh, he, he's, he's helped me personally um, a lot because of. He's one of those people that if you listen to uh, for a long enough period of time, you will get a flavor of a lot of other thinkers. You get a you get a flavor of Jung, Nietzsche, um, neurobiologists, pharmacologists, a lot of psycho a lot of the giants of um, psychology. So he's a great gateway for someone who's curious and wants yeah, to yeah, 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 yeah. delve in deeper. And, um, and he's very attuned to the civilizational absolutely. So dynamic. That, yes, yes. So this is this is this is where I want to go. This this because my first sense when I read your paper was that you have you have come up with a diagnosis. If I wanted to. If I wanted to describe your paper in one word, I would say this is a diagnosis of what's wrong with us today. Yeah, like, I, I thought from your questions, I thought you would like that paper. Yeah. Because I'm trying to address exactly the same questions. Okay, good, good, good. So, and diagnoses can be, can have different levels of, Resolution, different degrees of resolution. Diagnoses can be superficial. They can be looking at the problem, at the face of the problem, and, and diagnoses can go can go deep. And the deepest diagnosis, what I've what I've found, the language that they utilize is a religious language. And when I say religious, as I was saying before, I didn't grow up in a religious family, so I don't have that strong religious foundation. Um, as strongly as you you probably do, I, uh, um, that's just a guess. From I'm a theologian, yes. There we go. <laughs> it's another reason why I don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, that's not that's not the case. Um, the reason I emphasize on that is because when I use the word religious, what I mean by it is exactly the following. What what I mean by religious is something that I cannot get a grasp on, something that I cannot utilize my intellectual apparatus to describe, to rationalize, to uh, make a tangible case for. That's what I mean by religious, something that definitely transcends me. So by definition, it's transcendental. Now, again, what I mean by trans, um, transcendent in this context is something that is beyond me. Right. Yes. 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 Now, and 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 the difficulty of having that kind of perspective in the West uh -huh. is what I was writing about. That's that's right. It, it, we we have we have disarmed ourselves from being able to legitimately use that language. Yes, we have. That's that's I'm I'm, I'm in complete agreement. And we're agreement. incredibly lost as a result. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So, right. so whatever. You, and I don't know. I I think I might have mentioned this. So Aristotle's concept of theology. Mm -hmm is first philosophy, it's the same thing as like, it's your first principles, 
that you you that are that are above you. Okay, you you understand them. You stand under them, uh-huh, uh-huh. and you okay. reason from them. Very good. Uh, whereas the West likes to stand over everything, right? And everything has to be sort of understood in terms of discrete, material, instrumental, mm-hmm. how it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so the meaning questions aren't there. That's right. <laughs> right? That's right. So the meaning is conceived as some sort of an epiphenomenon, um, irrelevant to our, to our everyday lives. And it might be relevant, but it's not real. <laughs> it's not real. It's not like real. You, talk to, you listen to people like Richard Dawkins, who I, I'm, I'm quite fond of in a way. Mm, um, in a way. <laughs> but, you know, he says, oh, oh, no, these things are all very important to us, you know, gender and, you know, belief, but uh, they're not real. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is exactly the problem. And, and why are they important if they're not real? <laughs> this is exactly the problem I have with Sam Harris as well, who's, yeah. um, who's a, you know, uh, uh, one of the four. Uh, yes, adopted. Atheists. One of the adopted sons of Richard Dawkins. Um, he every time he is having this having this kind of monologue about uh, religion and, and um, a materialist reductionist um, attitude towards the world, he thinks he's being graceful and, and goes like, <laughs> "Oh, but you know, religion and um, and the realm of meaning and and all of that. It's it's all good. It's like we can have it. That's fine. It's like." It's such a, it's such a, there, there's so much arrogance in that, in that, um, in that method, in that, in that, in that lens that, you know, for you peasants, you, you people who, who can't, who can't put on a, um, uh, what is it, a lab uniform for, for, um, for you guys, it's, it's okay, okay. You, it's yeah, okay yeah. for you, like, yeah, you, you hold on to it mind. because you, you'd be lost you need it. Yeah. otherwise, yeah. Everyone needs a crutch. Except me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. It, yeah, it, and 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 that's that's what people like people like him have got completely completely um, you know um, upside down because it, if 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 we don't have a a framework within which we should align ourselves in uh, with regards to the material universe then there is no limits around what we're going to end up doing with yes. the material. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, the, uh, Peterson has a, has a beautiful sentence. He goes, you might say our grasp on the world is so sophisticated and our knowledge of, our, our knowledge of, the, uh, of the material world is so sophisticated that we are capable of building hydrogen bombs. And then he follows that by saying, but here's a counter proposition. Our grasp of the material world is so flawed that we're capable of building atomic bombs. That we have enabled ourselves <laughs> of building hydrogen bombs. <laughs> yes, that makes more sense. It makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah. But um, yes. Anyway, this is this is the this is this is this is the exact point that I want to get to at um, at the end of this. But if I may start by asking you to please, um, for people who who might um, listen to this in the future. Could you please explain the first two philosophies, uh, the Platonist and the Aristotelian uh, approaches towards, towards the philosophy of matter um, and our metaphysics? Could you please start by explaining how, how the two differ from each other? And then we'll get to the Democritian um, version of it. Good. Um, definitely. But just tell me, did, did the paper 
Could you follow the paper? I could. I could. I could. Uh, it's the... Uh, I could and I couldn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. I could in that, uh, in that I could make sense of the words, but because I'm not knowledgeable enough on, on, uh, on Plato and Aristotle, unfortunately I should be for someone who's interested in philosophy, I should really be more equipped on, on those fronts. But um, because I'm, I, I don't know those guys as, as well as I, I, um, I, I uh, was aware of um, Socrates and, 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 and his um, records, which are Plato's um, uh, records in reality. Um, because I don't know those two fellas um, well enough, uh, um, I, think, I think I missed on some, um, some of the fundamentals sure. that you were um, laying down. Have you... Um so I will definitely answer the question. These are fabulous. Buddy. Oh, great! Right. That's, that's you're you're the, you're the first um, experiment. So <laughs> my wife does cooking experiments on me all the time. I'm always Perfect. happy. Perfect. <laughs> um, the um, so I got all the way till I was doing my doctorate, and I hadn't read Plato and Aristotle. Okay, that okay? makes me feel better. Um, so I don't know what kind of education you've had, but if it was anything like mine, it was terrible. <laughs> and I realized early on in my doctorate, right. so, so I did a lot of work on Kierkegaard in my undergraduate years. I don't know if you're familiar with Kierkegaard at all. I have, um, I've read his, his material on um, anxiety. Okay. I love Kierkegaard. He's such an amazing guy. But, difficult not to um, agree but when I started my doctorate, I thought, okay, look, there's an awful lot I don't really understand about the big... There are four big guys in the history of the Western... in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the Western European philosophical heritage. Mm -hmm. and, and they are Plato and Aristotle from the Greeks mm -hmm. and Augustine and Aquinas from the Catholics. And I'd never read any of them. <laughs> So uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna blame it on my um, education system. Go on. <laughs> it's, we have the same problem. When, okay. when, um, so were you educated in Iran? Yeah. It's Engineering, though. Okay. Did they do some philosophy? Yeah. Okay. Whatsoever. Right. Um, I wonder what it'd be like. It might be better than ours. Um, I would imagine you would need to do Aristotle mm. if you did philosophy in Iran. No, um, the entire body. Our philosophical material is limited to Muslim philosophers. So, but they are strongly influenced by Aristotle. Th th that um, I, I, I have to agree to. Um, although the names don't get thrown around um, very often because, because it's important for the, for the system um, um, to, to, to constant, uh, um, constantly acknowledge and embolden the, the, the Muslim names. Okay, so it's a very theologically contained philosophy. Very much so, because, um, because the, an acknowledgement of Western philosophers, when I say Western Greek, is considered um, Western. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's pretty far east. Like <laughs> <laughs> we we um, consider part of the Eastern Orthodox world. You know, yeah, yeah but, but you, you, could, you could see how the two, the two sides have gone, have, have gone down two different routes, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, what I was trying to say with regards to um, how philosophy, uh, insofar as it's taught, it's, 
it's been tried to keep it contained to Muslim material, uh, first and foremost, because it doesn't... Because right. uh, if you don't do that, you end up with the West. That's right. Which is not Exa a bad point. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Good point. But there's got to be another way. Mm. <laughs> Agreed. But go on. Mm. Okay, so I read all Plato. I, I chewed quite a bit Aristotle. I love Plato more than Aristotle. Mm. God bless Aristotle. Popular opinion. <laughs> and um, I read a lot of Aquinas and a lot of Augustine. And then I thought, okay, I know my own history well enough to start doing my, my, my own work. Um, and then the university was at QUT and they got rid of their arts faculty. <laughs> right. <laughs> and fired my supervisors. <laughs> so, anyway, so it's an interesting story. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I feel like I have a reasonable education now, mm -hmm. not thanks to my education system. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, through your own um, curiosity. And yeah. Very good. Um, okay. I've, so well, Aristotle and Plato mm -hmm. on, yes, on matter. Mm -hmm. So... There are three basic views of matter in the Western tradition. And um, the oldest is Democritus, mm -hmm. then Plato, then Aristotle. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I'll do all three of them to start with sure. so you can see the differences. Sure. So Democritus is a pre-Socratic um, figure and he says... Um, the only reality is atoms in motion in void. There's nothing else. Mm -hmm. There's no mind. There's no um, intellective essence of things. Everything that we see looks like something you can understand, but in reality, it's all atoms of motion in void. And by void, we mean empty space. Yes. Yep. Because Aristotle didn't think there was void, but that's another, right. another issue. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, we, get to, we get to that, um, that as well. So, so everything that you see is not really what it looks like. This is not really a table. It's a bunch of atoms in motion in void. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they're falling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and they just sort of randomly, by, by random accident, apparently, um, uh, these tiny bits and pieces um, of different shapes and sizes mm -hmm. um, produce the world that we live in. Um, and um, it doesn't have any uh, any transcendent framework. Mm -hmm. Okay, so everything is imminent. Mm -hmm. In you understand the distinction transcendent and imminent. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Right. So everything is um, material. If it's not material, it doesn't exist. Right. That's Democritus. Right. And Plato says, well, if that's true, there's no meaning and no reason about anything. Mm -hmm. And famously, Plato never mentions Democritus once. Um, doesn't, so, doesn't contend with him. Not directly at all. Mm -hmm. He pinches a little bit of his um, atomist ideas uh, and tweaks them in his own system in the Timaeus. But he never directly mentions Democritus's name. And I, I think... The good scholarly consensus on this is because democracy is, is the opposite of Plato. <laughs> um, yeah, but that, that doesn't explain why he doesn't contend with him, though, because you, 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 you think... Aristotle does. Now, we'll okay. come to Aristotle as okay. who's Plato's student in a minute. But So the, just put this first position is that 
the world is entirely material and imminent and there's nothing else other than tiny little bits of things mm -hmm. that are called atoms. Mm -hmm. And the world that appears to us is a, a conglomerate of those tiny atoms and um, it might look meaningful, it might look ordered, but in fact it's actually a kind of chaos mm -hmm. that's simply material. Um, and there are different types of beings in this world made out of these things. Uh, he believed in the gods, but they were material things as well. Right. Of a particularly fine sorts of atoms. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So he didn't consider himself to be anti-religious, mm -hmm. but he just thought that, you know, people who, who uh, believe in, in this sort of a, a disembodied spiritual reality are kidding themselves. Right? Gotcha. So... Um, Plato thinks if that's true, then nothing is makes any sense at all and we're all just sort of... Um, I can't even have a meaningful conversation with you about that not making sense, mm. if it's true. <laughs> <laughs> because meaning itself is simply a, an appearance of a physical phenomena that's, that's not really there. I, don't, I really don't want to digress. I, I want to stay on this, on this lane, but... It sounds a lot like postmodernism. It is in the you are in the right lane. We will come back to that. Okay. 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 Um, so because I want to get because because postmodernism is as deep as I have managed to go when I when I start to trace back our today's problems into um, back into history, I fail to go further. But um, but your your diagnosis seems to be deeper than that, which meaning that it that it finds. The root of the problem somewhere a lot, you know, before in the 17th century. Yes, with with the Gassendi introducing atomism yes, back yes. into the West. Okay, absolutely. I think um, there's a direct line between Gassendi and Derrida. Okay, okay. Um, uh, I'm super so curious. So we will come uh, to yes, that. Yes, let's, uh, let's. So, so my argument is that what your philosophy of matter is affects everything. Um, and it's, it's about whether meaning and intelligible meaning is real or not. Mm -hmm. Okay? So to democracy, intelligible meaning isn't real. Mm -hmm. The only things that are really real are meaningless atoms bouncing around in void, randomly interacting with each other. Okay? Okay. So it's a, a, a kind of a pure materialism in that the world is matter and nothing else. Right. And... Um, so language and meaning are just epiphenomena of, of meaningless um, reality. Okay. Right? So, so uh, um, utter dismissal of objectivity, basically. There, there can't be any objectivity if, if there is no independent meaning, um, independent of the matter. Objectivity is not quite the right word. I think essence is the right word. Okay. okay? okay. So um, to democratize everything is just objective material stuff. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, it's just objects. There are no real subjects mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in Democritus, okay? Mm -hmm. There's no thinking, oh, I really, there's only a collection of atoms. Got it. That feels like it's thinking. Yep, yep. That persuades itself somehow that it's thinking. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> when it isn't. Yes. Uh, but what self is it persuading? But anyway, we're going mm -hmm. to go there. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so so um, Plato thought, well, it, you have to start with meaning. You can't start with matter. So the material world is in a continuous state of flux and contingency. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So Plato's influenced by Heraclitus in this area, mm -hmm. who famously said you can't enter the same river twice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, everything's in motion, yep. everything is kind of... Uh, uh, and the Greeks have this idea for something to be, it, it has to always be, right? Which cannot be the material. That's right. Okay. That's right. Right. So right. a circle um, is not a material thing. Mm -hmm. It's instantiated materially, but that's not going to be a circle in 500 years' time, likely. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and that's not a perfect circle either. So, so right. the, the circle is an intellective reality Form. Yeah. that yeah. is expressed in matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if there weren't ideas that could be expressed in matter, mm -hmm. there would be nothing, mm -hmm. uh, according to Plato. Plato. Okay. Sure. So the... So he starts with the, our experience of a meaningful world, and unlike Democritus, Plato says, I'm going to take meaning as the basic reality. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Democritus basically says, I'm going to take stuff as the basic reality. And if I can fit meaning around that, I will. <laughs> right? mm, okay. Um, so so Plato, Plato basically has a lot of difficulty with what we'll call the sophists. Uh, in mm -hmm. his era, mm -hmm. and the sophists are basically postmodernists. That, that, that's, that's exactly <laughs> how I how I um, um, understood them. Yes. Yeah, and the idea with the sophist is that um, they will um, argue anything for a fee. You, if you say I want you to defend this position, you give them money, they defend it, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and um, and they were able to do that because they knew a number of rhetorical yes. and argumentative yes. and linguistic tricks yes. that enabled you to make any argument look better than any other argument. Yes, but uh, this, is, this is interesting. So, so uh, you, you could argue that this is um, motivated and animated by malevolence and traits like you know, uh, dishonesty or you know, being disingenuous. But if you're truly possessed by the ideology, that language and concepts are nothing but tools to get to certain aims and attain power as a result of that, then you, 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 you find that endeavor, the endeavor of sophistry, quite legitimate. Right? Yes, and and you and anyone who's arguing with you, you think they're doing the same exactly. thing. Exactly, that's, that's it. Right? That's, Exactly my point. Yep, yep. Go ahead. Sorry. So at some point you must read Plato's Republic, and the um, the first book of the Republic. There's a character there called Thrasymachus, uh -huh. and Thrasymachus exactly illustrates this point. Right. So he's having an argument with Socrates about the nature of justice, mm -hmm. and he says to Socrates, "Look, justice is whatever is the strongest case, mm. the, the interest of the strong. That's what the just is. Uh -huh. So whoever wins, they decide what justice is. Right. And and so Socrates starts niggling his argument, oh, well, let's, let's give this a try, you know, and, and, and you know, in, in this kind of brilliant way that, that, that Plato always sort of portrays Socrates, yep. he ends up tying the other guy in complete knots with his own words. <laughs> and, As he does. And best. when Thrasymachus realizes, he says, I knew you were only interested in trying to beat me. And then Socrates has to backpedal. Oh, no, I'm not trying to win. I'm not trying to win. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. But, but you can't persuade someone who really thinks that. That's right. The that truth exactly. matters. That's exactly right. right. Because they don't think there is a truth. There is a truth. That, that's There's right. only yeah. words that are tools of power. Okay. Now, can we draw a connection in a, in a, 
and I know you have done this to some degree, but in a little, um, a little bit more of a tangible or, or graspable way, how is it that, okay, and I, I, I might be asking you to repeat yourself, but how is it exactly that uh, subscribing to a philosophy of matter such as um, Democritus gets us there? Okay. How is it that the machinations of it? Okay, so is it still a little bit blurry? Let's go back to the three positions. So, so Democritus says atoms in motion and void are the only reality. Now, Plato says matter, in a sense, is a derivative of mind. So, meaning and essential realities that are eternal and non-material are the grounds of the physical world. so the you know the world is flux and contingency. You can't really tie anything down, but the fact that we can talk about it meaningfully means there's another dimension, mm-hmm. a transcendent dimension mm-hmm. that the world is embedded in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Aristotle is halfway between Plato and and Democritus. Mm-hmm. So Arist- so the thing about Plato is he says that in the end the material world isn't real in itself. Mm-hmm that there's an immaterial reality that really is real. Mm-hmm. And, and the material world only participates in that immaterial reality. Mm-hmm. is not real in its own right. Mm-hmm. Whereas Aristotle wants to say the material world really is real. And so is... And ideas really are real. Mm-hmm. And so he's got this idea that they're, they're always connected. Mm-hmm. So matter and mind are eternal, co-eternal realities mm-hmm. to Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So matter and mind have always been and they're always interdependent and you never get form without matter. Mm-hmm. You never get ideas without substances mm-hmm. in Aristotle. Excepting for God. He's the right. only exception in, in Aristotle. Right. And God is just thought thinking himself in some okay. intangible way. <laughs> and proof, we have Christianity. Um, Ooh, the connection between Aristotle and Christianity is directly through Islam and very complicated. Okay. But... Um, we could come back to the 12th century in a minute. Okay. <laughs> um, Very good. But Plato is the, the guy who's immediately connectable with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the Christians in the, in the, in the first century are um, very similar to the Platonists in many regards. Mm-hmm. Okay? So what you can't see is realer than what you can see. That there is an eternal God who is the grounds of created reality. Plato and Christianity both see those the same way, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a really easy synthesis between Platonism and Christianity and a lot of uh, patristic, which is the sort of first flowering of, of philosophy, mm-hmm. of Christian theology, mm-hmm. um, is a pretty comfortable synthesis of many aspects of Platonist thinking with, with Christian doctrine. So, um, so that's... That's not difficult at all. Aristotle's more difficult because Aristotle doesn't believe you've got a soul after you die because matter and form are always together. Once your form goes, so does your... Once your matter goes, so does your form. Okay, okay. <laughs> so there's no life after death for Aristotle. Right. Right? Um, and the world doesn't have a beginning for Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are, it's much more difficult to make Aristotle fit Christian doctrine mm-hmm. than it is to make... Plato fit Christian doctrine. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. So yep. The, Makes sense. Thomas Aquinas is the guy who who gets them to work. Mm-hmm. It's an enormous achievement and mm. um, quite difficult, and it didn't last for long. 
<laughs> that's, that's another story. <laughs> right. Um, but um, so 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 backpedaling. I've got the big question in mind mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. So you've got matter and form are always together in Aristotle. You've got form or ideas are the primary reality, and the material world is derivative of that. Mm-hmm. With Plato, and you've got only matter exists for Democritus. Mm-hmm. And those three basic views of the nature of matter Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. give you three totally separate outlooks on reality. And and we are neck deep and if not fully immersed now uh, in the Gassendian or um, Democritian view of the relationship between matter and ideas. So just to reiterate, matter is all that's real. And ideas, um, and the notion, uh, um, I- ideas, and the fact that we can have thoughts, um, articulated thoughts about matter, is simply a delightful bonus. It doesn't mean much. It doesn't ma- It doesn't matter much. Is 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 that is that what we're saying? Well, well, let me try and uh, paint this a bit, sort of thicker. Mm-hmm. Um, so Democritus was never really taken that seriously in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Um, Plato, so there was a, uh, in the history of ancient thinking, take a um, after Plato dies, the academy that he sets up um, becomes really, uh, I suppose academic's the right word, mm-hmm. <laughs> becomes very armchair, intellectual mind right. game right. sort of thing. Right. And um, and uh, not many people are interested in it. And there's a revival in Plato himself, rather than the Academy, mm-hmm. in sort of the second century BC, mm-hmm. um, called Middle Platonism. And and this is treating Plato's thinking as really religious. Mm-hmm. Plato gives us a pathway to God. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of abstract mind share games uh, of people interested in you know complicated arguments. Um, seemed to the middle Platonists to be a kind of a rejection of Plato, actually. Because mm-hmm. Plato's really um, about uh, preparing for death. Okay, So when you die, your, your immaterial soul uh, has finished its mortal journey and will get judged. That's, that's what Plato thinks. <laughs> so what's important in this life is not, you know, have you got a nice house, all the kind of things that are going to pass away. And and he hasn't arrived at that position by uh, immense influence by religion, has he? No, well, uh, okay, so, so, okay, this is complicated. <laughs> Religion's only really invented in the 19th century, but we'll, we'll, we'll get you back to Institutional um, religion. The idea of of fixed systems of doctrine and practice that you can separate from right. one from another right. Right. really is a 19th century idea. Okay. Um, so there's no real distinction between philosophy and theology or religion right. until the 19th century. Okay. Um, so... I guess um, another way of asking that question was, do you see Plato um, praying through a prophet to God? Uh, do, like, do you see him to be that kind of guy, or or, or not, or he he has his own? Um, okay, guess. well, in in ancient Greece, uh, as you're probably familiar, they had all sorts of 
gods. Yes, but but is is that the, is is that the sort of gods that Plato um, believed in? Or absolutely not. This okay. is the interesting thing. Okay, okay so and and. Aristotle even more so. Aristotle had no time for religion mm -hmm. in, in what we would call religion. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Plato thought that the poets, you know, um, had been incredibly impious by saying that gods would do evil things, right? And so he, he was a monotheist, that, like there was one god, the, the final principle of reality is one, mm -hmm. right? And... Um, and it's all very well to look at, and, and you know, and if, if you look at the Plato's dialogues, which they're great reads, they're really fun to read, okay? Socrates is always very careful to be pious, right? He's always, you know... Not to be. Or to, no, to be pious. To, to be pious. Right? To okay. be respectful of the local cults okay. Okay. and customs and festivals, mm -hmm. because these were fundamental to Greek life, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the relationship between um, mythology and cults and civic life were absolutely intimate mm -hmm. in the world in which he lived. Mm -hmm. And um, Socrates was kind of executed for impiety yes. and yes. For, for atheism and for corrupting the mm. youth. So Plato is very careful to show that he was a pious guy mm. and he didn't have any problem with local religion, mm -hmm. but he didn't believe in it literally, okay? Mm -hmm. So the... the um, the, the symbolic and, and, and the Greeks kind of knew this. You, the myths are made up, right? They're not. They're not. Um, there's not a concept of, you know, divine revelation in the same trajectory that you have in Christianity and Islam. Mm -hmm. Okay, the the idea is you, you get your specially inspired people, and um, uh, let you know about the cult of Delphi. No. Um, okay, so Delphi. Um, there was a crack in the rock in a cave which had gases that would come up and the Pythia, these special prophetesses, would sit on a tripod over the gas, get high as kites and babble aimlessly <laughs> and then they would have a moment of revelation and they'd say something. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of, you know, from the other side speaking through these people. Mm. But um, the, the way in which imagination and spiritual realities mm -hmm. and stories and all kind of melded together and produced a plethora of of cults and practices mm -hmm. that was greek religion mm -hmm. okay and plato was right in kind of comfortable with that that was his world mm -hmm. but he didn't think that that was kind of philosophically credible mm -hmm. so his philosophical theology um uh like he's got no i suppose you could say footies like our religion here right mm. I can go along to the footy and still believe in God. Yes. yes. <laughs> I can participate in the local cults. Yeah. I can wave the flag. Mm -hmm. I can go do the rituals mm -hmm. and the liturgies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I feel sorry for people to who that's their highest meaning in life. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, it's kind of fun and it doesn't worry me. Mm. That's sort of Plato's attitude to the cults. Mm -hmm. um, but his pathway to God is through the mind and through moral discipline. Mm -hmm. Okay? So... And and you get a strong parallel with Christianity too. Okay, so the the, the um, Aristotle has this beautiful phrase. He says um, the head needs to rule the belly through the chest. Right. Right. So you don't want to be just controlled by your belly. Yes. Right. Which is instincts and animal yes. satiations. Right. Yes. Um, you want to use 
reason and habits of courage uh -huh. to discipline your body so that you're not just an animal, right? right? Because according to Plato, um, if you live like an animal, you're going to go badly in the judgment. Sure. If you live like a soul that's, um, you know, native to heaven, then you'll be rewarded after judgment, right? right. So philosophy is about preparing to die so that you're in good shape spiritually mm -hmm. when you die mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that your soul returns to the eternal realm from whence it came. Sure. And um, so it's, it's, it fits very easily with Christianity. With Christianity, yes. So, and, uh, with, and with Islam. Yes, which is absolutely. Uh, another yep. Abrahamic. The Abrahamic religions um, have a strong synergy. Greek philosophy seems to have, a, in Plato in particular, and also in Aristotle, has a strong synergy with, with what's going on from, um, from the Hebraic religious That's exactly traditions. right. That's exactly right. Um, Even okay. though they predate by some, yeah. some hundreds of years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, is, which is interesting. Um, okay, so Plato... Uh, strong belief in transcendental morality, belief in, uh, be uh, belief in the afterlife, belief in the realm of meaning, and um, belief in the uh, temporary and um, secondary nature of matter. Yes. Um, as opposed to form, and, and spirit. The, yeah, and the Platonist view was really dominant in various forms, like the Stoics also, mm -hmm. um, take aspects of that, mm -hmm. during the Greco-Roman period from about the 2nd century BC mm -hmm. until the end of the Roman era in the West, mm -hmm. in about the 4th, 5th century. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it keeps going on in the East, no problem, up until uh, the end of Byzantium. Um, and also the Islamic tradition takes on strong aspects of Aristotle. Mm -hmm. So that whole... Um, so the dominant cultural view is that the spiritual is primary and the material, though not unimportant, is secondary, right? And, and this goes from the time about the 2nd century BC right up, I would say, until 1960s. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, um, before but, before um, we had the postmodern um, explosion in France? Uh, yes, the, the so-called sexual revolution right. is the kind of the end of Christianity in the West. Right. I, yeah, I have to agree. So, so up until that point, the culture is still embedded in these Christian concepts that are very similar to Platonist concepts in many ways. Right. Right. So the spiritual is primary, and you are uh, committed to moral truths that are not simply arguments that are in your interest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. um, so, so, but that starts falling apart. In the 14th century, but we won't go back that far. We'll start with the 17th century. So, um, what's happening in the 17th century? There are problems with Aristotelian natural philosophy. So Aquinas manages to get Aristotle, which is um, not a neat fit to Christianity. Um, it's it fits Islam much better than Christianity. Okay, interesting. Um, interesting. So, okay. like the Trinities. Is a big problem for Aristotelian yeah, logic. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> like it's a complete, it's a complete no win. Yeah, <laughs> but um, Aquinas um, manages to hook him into um, the Christian doctrine somehow, and we get to the 17th um, century. It's well, Aquinas not... is an astonishing 
synthetic thinker. So he he doesn't just take Aristotle, he baptizes Aristotle into Augustine and through Augustine into a kind of Platonism. Mm-hmm. And in the ancient world, Aristotle was used in Neoplatonism in the same sort of way. So Aristotle was seen as really important to get your logic right and your science and your ethics right, but in the higher metaphysics, that's Plato. So they they were synthesized, but in in effect, Aristotle was subordinate to Plato in um, classical thinking. And Aquinas does that pretty well in the 13th century as well. However, other Christ, other Christian thinkers uh, just ditch Plato as much as they can, yeah. and you start to put Aristotle against Plato um, from the 14th century. Christian thinkers. Yes. And so by the 17th century, Aristotelianism is in a lot of trouble, and particularly over matter. Okay, so um, I talked about prime matter. Yes. Okay, so theoretically, if everything is made out of matter and form, it's possible theoretically to have matter without form. Uh Now, it's not in fact possible to do that if you're an Aristotelian, because all matter is informed. Yes. Right? And matter and form are co-equal, co-eternal realities right. that don't exist. But theoretically, you can abstract them out. And theoretically, you can abstract form out. Okay? So in Aristotelian ways of understanding perception, um, uh, when I see you across the, the room there, um, the form of who you are um, is imprinted on my mind and my mind through, through my senses. And then my mind creates a phantasm um, of your form which enters my mind. You don't enter my mind. <laughs> but that, that's, actually, that's, that's actually true. That's, uh, I mean, He's from a smart a, guy. <laughs> yes, okay, let's, let's, um, let's go ahead. Sorry, I, th- th- that would be a complete digression. Um, I hmm. don't want to do that. Um, let's, but but let's basically, you can have, I, can, I don't have you in my head. Yes. When I'm perceiving you. I have the picture that I have I've created the form of, of you. you. Yes. I have your idea, yeah. right, without the substance, right? Right. So you can have idea without substance in theory, and mm-hmm. you can have substance without idea in theory, but in reality... You are substance and form. Yes. <laughs> right? Okay. Okay. Um, so, so a big thing was going difficult. Problem was um, from the 14th century on. Well, actually, even from from the 12th century with Abelard, there's a real attempt in the West to be really concrete um, and to say, well, I'm not particularly interested in universal ideas. I want to know what the particular things are. It's sort of the attitude of utilitarianism, isn't it? Like the reason for that, the reason that 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 interest starts boiling up is because what? Because of development, because of technological advancements, because people start to care about what they can do with things uh, more than what they mean in a transcendental sense. Sure. A, A big thing that's going on in the leading up to the 17th century is 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 theological developments that really want more power. Right. <laughs> okay. uh, frankly, that's really what it comes down mm. to. And in Christianity, um, I've, I'm familiar with Genesis, the, the first book of the... Yep. Well, it's the first Hebrew yep, yep. book, but it's the mm-hmm. first book of the Hebrew Christian scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So God creates Adam and Eve mm-hmm. and gives them dominion over the earth, mm-hmm. right? And, and so there's a really interesting dominion over the earth. Mm-hmm. This is our divine right in a way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, oh, look, back one step. Okay, so Aristotle coming into Western Christianity in the 13th century was a very difficult thing for Christian theology. Um, and one of the problems that it raised was there were people who were called were called by their enemies anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Greek necessitists. Okay. So, so if you take Aristotle's logic, everything has to have a logical reason, and nothing happens outside of having a logical reason. And this means God doesn't have any say. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? That makes sense. Right. And. And so a reaction to that is called voluntarism, which says, well, God can do whatever he likes. It doesn't have to make sense, mm-hmm. right? He can make a square circle if he wants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, um, so, so you get this idea that the basic quality of God is unlimited arbitrary will. Mm-hmm. And then we're made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. So we want unlimited arbitrary will and we want power over the earth. So we're looking for ways of getting more control without, with less limits. And Aristotle's problematic by this time because Aristotle says there's, a, there's an essence to things that's there whether you control it or not, right? There's a meaning that's already there. You can't just do whatever you like. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so there are... And then the problem of matter, you know, what is prime matter... Um, sort of leads in, inexorably towards the idea of democritus in a way. These just little material bits mm-hmm. um, that are shaped by mm-hmm. form. Right? So it's all kind of blowing up by the 17th century. And along comes Gassendi and other, other thinkers, and they say, look, let's recover Democritian atomism. It's a much simpler way of understanding the world. Because to Aristotle, everything's got an, an essential form, as well as the material stuff. So if you want to know what a giraffe is, you have to know what the concept of giraffe is. Yes. Right? And so giraffe, in a sense, although it doesn't exist independently of all giraffes for Aristotle, it's something that's bigger than a giraffe, a single giraffe. Right, right. right. So, so you've got this idea of an essence is a universal um, intellective reality. Mm. And um, and also to Aristotle, nature has its own purposes. You can't do whatever you like with it. <laughs> and morality is about getting your purpose to be natural. And you can you can do things that are unnatural, and that makes them immoral. That makes them immoral to okay. to Aristotle, right? Which again sits very neatly with Islamic moral philosophy mm. and Roman Catholic moral philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, it's called natural law in Roman Catholic mm. philosophy that what's natural is what is good because mm. God made it that way. Um, so you get, this, right. you get this desire to throw constraints out, a theological desire, and you get this in if Francis you get, Bacon. If you get rid of, yes, if you get rid of the notion of essence, then nothing has to be a certain way. Everything right. can be however you want it to be. And all you need to know is how things work and how they can be made to work to do what you want to do what you because want. Mm. you've got dominion. Mm. <laughs> right? mm. So they're looking for a new type of 
philosophy in the 17th right. century. And um, Gassendi is a Roman Catholic priest. He's an amazing guy, an incredible guy. Like, he's a very attractive figure mm. when, when you read him. But he does, you know, he really great, stuffs great it all it. up. <laughs> <laughs> At least we've got someone to blame. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and people like the Royal Society in London just love it. Mm. So, um, so the idea is that. So, would it be too much of a stretch to say we kind of uh, owe is not the right word, but I was I was going to say we, we owe um, uh, a lot of enlightenment to uh, him in some way. Uh, well, it's it's going on in a bro much broader sense. Yes. Okay, so, but essentially, we owe the enlightenment to theological and philosophical developments. Yes. If, if we go back far enough, um, the Catholic insistent on the idea of truth, that this, and, and I'm borrowing this from Nietzsche, that if it wasn't for the Catholic uh, um, uh, what is it? <clears throat> incessant emphasis on the, on the importance of truth, human beings wouldn't have obsessed with being able to prove whether or not the realm of, of, of the transcendent is a sensible concept to believe in. Because, you know, you're, you're being asked as a, uh, you know, as, as someone who's supposed to be uh, um, religious, you're being asked to believe in all of these um, sorts of things, the, the idea of a God, um, you know, a transcendent realm that you can't find any evidence for. So, uh, if if we agree on truth being something you can find evidence for, then if you are committed to the truth, you have no choice but to get rid of um, religion because you, you have no evidence for it. Well, this is really what happens after the 18th century. Yes, that's right. Okay? That's right. So um, uh, this is really kind of Hume's Scottish Enlightenment. Mm. Um, which has a very different flavor to the kind of, you know, like the Erasmian Catholic humanist mm -hmm. um, enlightenment of the 15th century. Um, so, yes, you, you get to... Okay, there's, a, there's an interesting transition here, okay? So, to Aristotle and, and um, Christian metaphysics in, in the early modern period, um, <clears throat> like you were saying when we first came in the room, okay, there, there are things you sit underneath, right, that are the basis on which you reason from, mm -hmm. rather than things that you can prove, mm -hmm. right? If there's no, and, and Plato sort of has this position. Um, if you read the Apology, which is Socrates' sort of death speech, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, he's making a gamble. He's saying, I can't say, I can't prove to you that I've got a soul after I die, but if I do, it's going to matter what I do. And if I don't, it doesn't matter, so I might as well do it anyway. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's the, um, the categories of proof appropriate to the transcendent are not the same as the categories appropriate to the imminent, but they become mm. conflated. Mm -hmm. through the success of science in the 18th and 19th century. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. But when it starts, Galileo is saying, look, I'm not really interested in truth. I'm only interested in how it works. Mm. Right? 
I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm just, and Newton's saying this a lot, I'm not interested in essential reality, I'm interested in observable, demonstrable principles that I can mathematically model, yep, right? Yep, utilize. Mm-hmm. And, and then use in terms of, you know, manipulating the physical world. Mm-hmm. Um, so early modern science is, not, it really is, is overtly not interested in essential truth, mm-hmm. right? But it becomes so successful after Newton, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's the huge, great big thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it becomes, we become infatuated with scientific truth. Mm-hmm. And then if you can't prove something scientifically or rationally, this is where you get to Kant, um, well, you know, we can't consider it to be reasonable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Kant basically tries to, to um, justify religion within the bounds of reason alone. Right? Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but um, so what, what, what Kant does is that, this is, this, is what I, this is how I understand it, that the fact that we have assumptions in the way we interact with the world, the fact that we, we have statements of ought without having, having undergone the process, the process that, that supposedly would take us to an is, the fact that without the process we have, we have such presumptions that give us certain oughts, therefore, because Kant was a believer, wasn't he? Uh, it's complicated. <laughs> of course it is. He was a German Protestant, that's complicated. Right, 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 right. right. God bless German Protestants. Yes, yes. Um, uh, sorry, go on. But but see, for Kant, the ought and the um, is internal to the subject. It doesn't come from outside the subject. Okay, that, that's a misunderstanding on my part. So um, everything is internal to the subject for mm-hmm. Kant because you can't know noumena. You mm-hmm. can only know phenomena, phenomena yes. and you only know it from your own consciousness. Right. So, so, um, so Hume looks out at the world and he says, well, I can't see any ought. Right? Mm. And, and Kant says, well, it's not out there, it's in you. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm. um, so, so, and so, in the end, it doesn't escape solipsism, in my, in my opinion. Uh, Kant or... or uh, Kant. Or, well, Hume obviously doesn't, and he knows he doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. But, but, but this, is what, this, is, this is where I'm getting confused, because uh, the, the, um, the, uh, the, the problem that Hume raises that you can't get to um, an author from an is... Um, Hume raises that problem, but he doesn't find a solution to it? No, he doesn't. Okay. He okay. says, when it confuses me, I go and play backgammon. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. And have some fun with my friends and don't worry about it. Mm. <laughs> but he can't tell. So if he's been a rigorous empiricist and he only makes judgments on the basis of perceived sensory perception, okay. Okay, right. then he can't see ought out there. And he can't even see the problem of, like the problem of induction. He can't even see that things should happen the same way twice. It's just probable that it will happen that right. way. Right. 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 Because the, the atheists of today, you, regardless of how much you try, you cannot convince them that you can't get to the art from the ears. Whereas, uh, and all of whom are grandchildren of Hume. But Hume acknowledged that you can't. But Sam Harris's and Richard Dawkins of the world, they 
are fully convinced that of course you can. Of course you can. You, you just need to be rigorous and comprehensive in your material They're not analysis. anywhere near as good philosophers as Hume was. Or, or, or <laughs> honest, I would, I would, I would argue. Um, well, they're not philosophers at all. They're, no, that's, that's, yes. They're kind of, I, I would call them religious figures, but um, mm. they would be insulted by that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. So we get to, we get to the 17th um, century and we basically um, dismiss the, rel the, the, the realm of noumena and um, the, the realm of the transcendent. Well, that's really the 19th century. Okay. Okay. So, so what happens between the 17th and... and, and okay. The so... Um, for the first time, Democritus becomes interesting. Okay, he wasn't really interesting culturally mm -hmm. in the ancient world. Um, and modern chemistry gets up through like atom atomic theory is very helpful. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. thinking of the world in terms of atoms, mm -hmm. there's a point to it, right? Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> look, um, look what we've managed. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's been an, even though we couldn't demonstrate that atoms actually existed until very recently. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's been um, the theory stood. Yeah, it's been a, a great way of doing chemistry, mm -hmm. and um, it's not, it wasn't necessary in physics, uh, Newtonian physics. But it was. It's been great for chemistry, mm -hmm. and um, science progressed by not worrying about the meaning or purpose of anything, but just observing the physical stuff and how it behaves. Mm -hmm. Right. So this became, so this philosophy of matter becomes, so you've got this Christian view of, um, you've got a theological view that's like Platonism or Aristotelianism, and you've got this scientific view that's rising, and this view is kind of falling. Mm, mm, <laughs> right? mm. And, and I think the tipping point, um, the tipping point happens, I think, intellectually with Kant, but it happens culturally with the 1960s, where where the you know the Christian uh, Platonist metaphysics drops beneath the scientific materialist mm. perspective. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, the the thing is, again, from Nietzsche, when when the when the tr trunk is cut from underneath it, it's only a matter of time for it to. Run out of steam. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and he like he's an astonishing guy. I, mm. I love the. Um, I think he's a failed Kierkegaard. But, <laughs> 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 but um, the uh, you know the, the the insight he had that you know you, you kill God and we kill ourselves. It, it, right? It's all going to go. He, he all could see that. Yes. I don't really know. Um, so he was a true romantic, okay? He wanted to go back to classical Greek thinking mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and get rid of this, you know, petty Christianity and this mm -hmm. petty Jewish thinking mm. and, and go back to, you know, manly, mm. make it up yourself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, with a deep disgust in Plato and Aristotle. And he, wanted, he liked the, you know, the pre-Socratics, the, the people who are courageous to just... Mm. Pull it out of their ass. The strength of the, the strength of <laughs> and the make will. it up themselves. Yes, yes. And, and he's running around with his hammer, tapping all the hollow idols. Mm. But actually, his idol has to be hollow too. Mm -hmm. um, all, all he, all he, I think what he's doing, tapping the idols. You, you, you know this image. Yeah. Um, we can 
to, to Nietzsche, we construct these transcendent gods, mm -hmm. but you tap them and they're hollow and they're just idols. They're not God, they're just our own projections, mm -hmm. right? And what he, it, he didn't care that they were our own projections. What he didn't like was that we thought they were God, right? So he wants us to make our own projections, yes. but to know they're not God. To acknowledge that they're not God. Or that God. we are God in a way. And they, they, it's, it's, yeah. give me one second. I have to put the, the real deal into the oven. Oh, fabulous. Um, but, because I want to get into Nietzsche a little bit more deeply. So, so, a lot of people meet, um, in, in my idea, misinterpret Nietzsche in thinking that Nietzsche's insistence on becoming superhumans or whatever um, means to create your own values, to create your values in the um, 80 years of life that you get on, the, um, on this planet. And it, when, when you think about it that way, it just, it just um, on, the f on the face of it, 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 it comes across as a, little bit, uh, as a little bit of an impossibility. Do you have another, uh, another way of making sense of what he meant by creating our own values? Do you interpret it in any um, other way than the simplistic notion of, you know, once you become an adult, start to, start to investigate as to what matters to you the most and, you know, go for it single-mindedly without um, ascribing to any sort of higher moral code. Create your own. That's how, that's how one reads Nietzsche. But um, is that how, is that... Is that how you understood him too? Yeah, he's a, um, okay, so I, I understand Nietzsche as a romantic. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean to you? Okay, so think of Wagner, think of Liszt, think of the, um, the great romantic musicians. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea is here that the genius um, is a... Is a a master poet mm -hmm. who creates meaning, right? And it's not real morality unless you create it, okay? Okay, so if you're blindfo blindfoldedly following some moral code that you didn't participate in creating it, you're just a coward. Yes, you don't have the courage to understand that meanings aren't found, they're made. Right. Right? And so, and this is incredible. Like it, it's a, it's an amazing thing. The nineteenth century romantic movement. Okay, so the the um, and and I don't know if you if you like Brahms or or um, do, do you know these romantic composers? No, no. Um, but I'm um, uh, unfortunately not very musically um, educated. Okay, I must give you a bit of a... <laughs> um, I know Wagner, but that's only because I know Nietzsche. <laughs> well, that was a weird relationship. <laughs> very, very, very much so, very much so. Um, uh, so you know the flight of the Valkyrie, okay? Yes. Okay, it's just magnificent music. And mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's quite... Um, uh, so I play the violin and... Um, it's um, 
hard to play, right? Very much. But the it it's it's very it has this amazing effect. So he's a master of effect, mm-hmm. Wagner, mm-hmm. and um, he's always kind of in his music. He's always tantalizingly building you to a kind of climax that never really happens. And then you keep getting built and it never really happens. And it builds the tension and it builds the tension. And it finally gets to the climax. Oh. Right. <laughs> and the ring cycle goes for hours and hours and hours. Mm. And it's kind of this huge epic event in playing with your soul mm. in the audience mm-hmm. um, to construct um, an artistic world of meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Part of the dynamic going on here is that there's a kind of a, a loss of confidence in theology in the 19th century. Um, and this comes back to those German Protestants again. And this is why I'm not sure whether Kant was a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, what's going on in, in, in the 1830s is that you're getting serious German Protestant scholarship doing what's called biblical criticism. Mm-hmm. And like this is something you're not allowed to do in Islam. And That's right. And um, the Roman Catholics wouldn't let them do it mm-hmm. until um, the 1940s, I think. And I think it was a bad idea that they let them do it. <laughs> um, but the, the idea here is that you get this guy, David Strauss, comes up with the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he says... Look, we're modern scientific people. We understand how documents are written. They're written by humans. And um, uh, unlike the Islamic revelation, the Christian scriptures have always been understood to be written by humans. (laughs) Um, St. Paul had no idea he was writing the Bible when he was doing that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so... Strauss says, we know the Bible Bible is written by humans and um, it's being fiddled with and tweaked by... If you use literary criticism, you can sort of say, well, the style changes here. There seems to be another voice and um, and it looks like there's some tweaking of the doctrine to make it fit in with what we now understand as orthodox theology. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, and so there's, there's this detailed textual analysis of the scriptures um, driven by a kind of historical scientific skepticism and and also by a kind of a rational skepticism. Mm, that's where everything goes wrong. Yeah. So, so, so Strauss says in the 1830s, he says, okay, look, there were no miracles. Let's get over that. We're modern people. Miracles don't happen. Right, but what does it really mean? Mm-hmm. And then he then he comes up with the idea. Well, it's a myth, right? And he thinks the mythic meaning of it is more significant than the factual falsity of it. Right, right, right. And and this sends Western Christianity into Western culture into a bit of a, mm. a tailspin. Mm. And you get after this very quickly after this, you get Feuerbach uh, with. Um, the essence of Christianity, mm-hmm. saying, well, what Christianity is really about is creating God in our own image, mm. right? We thought we were creating God's image. No, it's the other way around. Okay? Mm. Right? And, and then very quickly after that, you get Marx saying, well, actually, religion is just a 
really handy means of controlling people. Yes. Right? And after that, you get Nietzsche, right? Mm. So, so there's this collapse of confidence mm -hmm. in theology as a meaning framework in the West, and music fills the gap. Mm -hmm. right? Art, mm -hmm. the great artist, and it's the cult of the genius mm -hmm. in the 19th century. And Nietzsche is one of these cults of genius. And he was a phenomenal linguist, mm. right? Oh, um, yeah. A brilliant, brilliant philologist. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and very, like most German brilliant people, mm -hmm. very aware of how brilliant he was. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I love Germans. But uh, when, they, when they're good, they know they're good. And, you know, like Hegel says, well, okay, obviously I'm the voice of God, you know. Mm. <laughs> what could be, you know, the, the voice of Geist more than me? Mm. I'm the pinnacle of Jim. So anyway, and there is no shortage of um, that kind of attitude in Nietzsche's writing either. So. Very similar, very similar, mm -hmm. and and I don't like. I know this is controversial, but I think it's not surprising the Nazis found him useful. See that I, I was just gonna say, coming from that, like, um, establishing that 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 attitude is uh, prevalent uh, among the Germans of the time, um, at the very least. It it's it's. It starts to make a little bit more sense that uh, the ideology of Nazism yes. kind of found its place um, in Germany. I'm afraid it's no surprise when you look at it closely. Mm. Um, uh, and and this, is, this is something that seems to have taken many a German intellectual by surprise, mm. that something as barbaric as Hitler... Yeah. The, could the, happen the most in the pinnacle society. Yeah. European culture, mm -hmm. <laughs> the most philosophically, artistically developed culture, mm -hmm. gives rise to Hitler. Mm -hmm. So, um, mm -hmm. but it's it's it makes sense. You generate. You know, Hitler said, "You know, if you tell a lie, tell a big one." Mm -hmm. right? And what's important is not whether it's true; it's whether people believe it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, see, the, the reason I wanted to emphasize on Nietzsche is because uh, I don't know if it's Lyotard or Derrida who says I'm basically I'm basically a Nietzschean, in in um, in one of their books, which I don't remember. Oh, but Nietzsche they, is hugely influential on the postmodern movement, and for good and bad reasons. Can you can you um, can you illust um, illustrate the the connection, the link? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Can you please? Um, so. It's the concept of poesis that we... You, poetry, poesis in Greek means making, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we make meaning. Mm -hmm. um, so the... the uh, after Kant, okay, Kant says, well, you can't know things in themselves. Mm -hmm. You can only know the transcendental, and the transcendental is not the transcendent, okay? This is a really important distinction. So okay. Let me try and explain this. Yes, okay? please. So the transcendent is divine reality somehow breaking into your, mm -hmm. your life. So um, whereas the transcendental is recognizing that we can never know things as they really are in their selves. So f sitting within our phenomenal experience, we extrapolate from our logic and our sensation as if there was a meaning, right? That's a transcendental, as if there was a meaning. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as a transcendent. Mm, okay. um, and so, so to, to, to Kant, the thing that gives us human dignity is our capacity to live a, a rational, moral life, right? And the thing that makes it 
significant is simply logic. <laughs> right? there's, there's no real substantive good in Kant. There's only this is what is logically required. So, you know, you only act in such a way that you can make a universal law out of it. That's simply logic, right? Um, what's the... So I, I shouldn't lie because if other people lie, um, I wouldn't like it. So let's be logical. Right? It's the, the basis of morality is simply logic in mm-hmm, Kant, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. There's no metaphysics of the good mm-hmm. which makes a lie an offence mm-hmm. against the good, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's simply logic. So, right. so it's, a, it's a formal rather than a substantive morality. Right. So even morality should be upheld merely because of its utilitarian... Um... Oh, not, not utilitarian for Kant, but, you know, for the sake of, of the autonomous, the autonomy of the eye. Right. Okay, so he's really into um, what gives me dignity is rational autonomy. Mm-hmm. That I only do things because it's rational. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. If I do something because it's irrational, I, I deny my human dignity. Mm. That's it. That's Kant's morality. Okay. <laughs> right? um, okay. So, so, so um, that's interesting. Even though, I mean, uh, I know you mentioned he, he was a um, Protestant, but but still a Christian. And for for someone for 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 a Christian to um, to assert uh, no tra- no transcendent source of morality, that's um, interesting. Okay. Well, okay, so 19th, 18th century deism was a really big in the Germanic circles, mm-hmm. which is kind of a rational belief in God and, and quite a disdain for the scriptures. Right. Um, so this is also going on before mm-hmm. Strauss comes on in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So Kant doesn't like the idea of believing anything superstitious, mm-hmm. anything irrational, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know... Um, I'm not even sure that he, I don't know that he ever talked about this, but, you know, something like the Trinity or, or a man rising from the dead, you know, it's just embarrassing mm. yep. <laughs> for, an, for an 18th century rationalist. Yep. Yep. I can see and that. we like the, the deists mm. just weren't interested. Mm. They had this idea of God that was purely rational mm-hmm. and really wasn't interested in us mm-hmm. and would never do intervene in history or any of those things that the scriptures say like mm. that's just embarrassing mm. right mm-hmm. so there's a lot of embarrassment about christian mm. doctrine mm-hmm. already before the 19th century mm-hmm. and then then you get this movement to really throw it out and then then the culture is a bit lost the high culture is a bit lost and it turns to these romantics um who who um No, I love Brahms. Okay, so Beethoven's the first of the Romantics, right? So, so Beethoven, Brahms, Wagner, all these guys have these enormous experiential landscapes that really throw you around. Uh, um, so, so the and and the idea is that you achieve ecstasy. You you get out of yourself, and you transcend your limited personal perspective very and much you, the point of music you're drawn up into something greater than yourself mm-hmm. but we create it mm. right so so in in somehow god is expressed through our creation mm-hmm. this is hegel mm. right so 
So this is the end of traditional Christianity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So uh, so Nietzsche is very much caught up in that. He's he um, his father was a Lutheran minister, Pretty, and yeah. um, his sexuality seemed to be complicated mm. as well. So I, I'm not sure, but um, he just throws the whole lot out at one point, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and he's I'm going to make it myself, mm. and this is. This is, and he, and he, and, and you know, I get a lot of respect for someone who is prepared to say, well, it doesn't exist other than how I make it, so therefore I'm going to make it, mm. right? And, and this is, like, he's an enormously attractive figure yeah. to everyone in, in post-modernity after, afterwards because of the idea of poesis, the idea that you make the meaning yourself mm. and you don't let anyone tell you what's right or wrong mm -hmm. or what you should and shouldn't do if you're just following other people's prejudices or a, a priest caste or a religion or something you don't have existential courage right and you're a weakling and you don't deserve to be considered a moral person yeah, yeah. so Nietzsche despised them as immoral mm. If I'm a good Catholic, he would despise me as immoral. Mm. Right? Mm. Mm. Yes, I, that is exactly how I understand him. Uh, however, if there, if there has been one person who has taken Nietzsche as seriously as he deserves to be taken, I would say it's, I would say it's Jung. I think, I think, uh, First and foremost, what animated Jung in his endeavor um, was that very question that Nietzsche posed, that up until now, we have survived by, by following a certain set of rules half-assedly. At this point in time, what is it, like 100 years after Gesendi, um, probably? Uh, uh, 200, yeah. yeah, two, yeah 200 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. At this point in time, we don't seem to have much of much of a much of a commitment to those rules anymore. If there is anything left, it is going to go away within within the not too long future, and that is going to lead to our um, annihilation unless we do something about it. And in his opinion, what we should do about it is to get our act together and create values. I put create values in quotation marks because because I'm just mindful of still um, still misunderstanding it. But what Jung suggests downstream of that is you don't create your values. You can't create your values. You're not supposed to create your values. You're supposed to discover them. You're supposed to pay attention and watch yourself, watch your mind, and watch how your interests steer you in the world, that's where your values are. And then you can start questioning whether or not, whether or not you've had the, whether or not you've had productive values inst uh, instilled in you. And that's, your, that's the project that you have been assigned to for life, to work on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and and this is this is the 
I mean, both of us have uh, a, a great deal of respect for Nietzsche, but I cannot, I cannot help but see the 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 very root of our problems today to be that very arrogant attitude towards whether or not we should we should follow we should follow certain rules whether or not there there are transcendent values whether or not there are such things as values whether or not there are values that are more important than others um, I think that's the great uh, dilemma of today that you can't just you can't assert statements such as you know this is wrong that is right saying things like that today is very difficult for people you'll get into a lot of trouble that is wrong I always find that ironic I get into trouble for believing in right mm. <laughs> so okay so I think we both agree on that. But right? let's talk about Jung before. Okay. Before, because um, this is fascinating. Um, I'm not sure. So I imagine Jordan Peterson would have some connection between Jung and Nietzsche. Oh, uh, he describes Jung as Nietzsche's student, and for good reason. Jung has uh, Jung has written thousands of pages on a handful of pages of Nietzsche's books. So he has gone as deep as anybody has on um, with regards to Nietzsche. He has, he has, he has d done his best to try to understand why someone as deep, as revolutionary, and as extraordinarily intelligent as Nietzsche would come to the conclusion that we are equipped with the intellectual or mental apparatus to create our values. So that's, 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 the, that's, Jung's, that's the project of Jung's life, to answer that question. Yes. And I, I think so... So I, I'm not a deep scholar in either of these guys, no. um, but it seems to me that... So Nietzsche really grasped poetry, the poesis, the idea of the making right so you have to be invested in what it is you are um, you have to own your values as things that you um, that you make mm -hmm. now I'm not clear in Nietzsche what that exactly means but in Jung it means that you make things that the imagination connects you to things that are already there Okay. So so like the the um you don't actually make uh, how am I going to put this? <laughs> so um well let me start with Kierkegaard. I'll mm -hmm. come back to that, right? Okay. So so Kierkegaard invents the word existential. Okay. And they don't know that. Yeah, and it's 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 his word. Mm. Um and I don't think such should use it, but uh, anyway, <laughs> these Frenchies. <laughs> um, but the um, the idea is that so there's a difference between being and becoming, 
Existence is about becoming. Mm -hmm. And becoming is an active process. Mm -hmm. So to, to Kierkegaard, there are things that are essentially there, right? Because he's, a, he's an Augustinian Christian. So he's, he's got a high Platonist metaphysics, right? Mm -hmm. But as we live, we make it, right? right. So there's this relationship between um, being and becoming that's uh, fundamental in Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, Nietzsche gets rid of the being bitten, has the becoming only. That's right. And then... It seems to me that Jung is putting the being bit back in. Back there, yeah. Right? Yep. As, as things you can access through the subconscious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Archetypal, mm -hmm. mythic realities. And this ties in with Strauss. Okay? This okay. ties in with the, the Germanic 19th century influence, interest in the myth. Mm -hmm. So the myth and poetry, um, with Strauss and Nietzsche, become incredibly significant. Um, and I would think someone like Jung is dealing with those in a way that I would think, I, I, I don't know his work very well, but I would think are promising. Whereas someone like um, Foucault is dealing with a way that I would think is destructive. Absolutely. Um, but they're both seriously dealing with something. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> they are. However, I would argue, and I'm, I'm not to be taken seriously. Because Foucault is as much... Nietzsche's child as is Jung. Yes, very much so. I, I, We're all my, Nietzsche's children, I'm yeah, afraid. <laughs> in my wilder moments, I, I, uh, I can't help but, just, just from knowing a little bit of biography on um, Foucault, I can't help but imagine some sort of a malevolent intention in, in Foucault's method of using Nietzsche, Foucault's way of using Nietzsche's strongest arguments. And, and this is you only see this in queer theory very strongly. That's right. And, and, and this is only because I, I don't think of Foucault as a healthy person. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, controversy with regards to his sexual life, with regards to his um, fantasies. And uh, anyway, I don't want to get too, too um, deep into that. But I think of Jung as very much a, um, his attitude towards Nietzsche's question was a lot more ambivalent, let's um, put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And, well, I, I think, I don't know what influence Kierkegaard had on Jung, but mm. um, Kierkegaard has an enormous influence on 20th century mm. existentialist thinking, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, Sartre and Heidegger and all these guys. Mm. Um, I don't know that Nietzsche had any contact with Kierkegaard, I don't know. Um, he may have because mm. Kierkegaard was a Lutheran. When did Kierkegaard die? Oh, I think it's the 1840s, late 1840s. Okay, so, so, so they, they did have a bit of an um, overlap. Not much. Uh, quite a bit older, Kierkegaard is. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, okay. Before, because uh, dinner is going to be um, ready soon. I do want to get to the solution because you you, you do <laughs> yes. you do get to a solution in the end. You're, you're being very patient. We've gone everywhere. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, oh, it, when when I read the solution, which is like uh, one one like five percent of your paper, basically, I I I I, I would have loved more 
elaboration on that because that's where we get stuck in the 21st century because you, basically you're saying in the paper that this is, this is what has gotten us here and as a result of that we have these problems. Now you say in order to resolve these problems we need that. So a reason for going there is the problems. Yes. And I don't I just, I, I have a difficult time thinking that I can sell anybody, uh, sorry, I, I can sell that to anybody who's committed to 21st century way of living. Yeah. I think what is needed for people to understand that we need a revision in our methodology isn't the, the fact that oh, we have certain problems, what if we go back and try, you know, this road as opposed to, as opposed to the road that we've come down so, um, so far? I, I don't think that's going to be welcomed. I think, and this I, is what... I can I, assure you, okay. it isn't. <laughs> and, and so, so this, this, is, this, is a, this is an example I use quite often. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends, uh, once she hears this, she's going to roll her eyes. But I use this example often. When, when somebody has diabetes, and as, as the result of the diabetes, the wounds aren't healing, regardless of how much you obsess um, over the wounds and how many band-aids you use, he or she is still going to die because of the diabetes. You, got, you, 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 you better get to the diabetes if you want to solve the problem. Yeah. And I think... Our political issues today, which are an absolute mess. I mean, I cannot, I cannot imagine anything worse than this. I think our political problems between the left and the right, regardless of which country we are talking about, there's always the left and the right. I think we are obsessing over the wounds and we are playing Absolutely. a whack-a-mole. Absolutely. And like the, the culture war is a complete farce, right? Yes. And, and neither progressives nor conservatives as, as, as kind of manipulated by the other side is going to get us anywhere. That, that's, that's, it's that's the exactly. people who are standing outside of both of those mm. camps who give us promise. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and, and this is, um, I mean, you as someone who has a grasp on the problem, I, I happen to agree with your... Um, proposition but like in your in your wilder moments in your uh, when you're fantasizing about what to do about these problems do you ever think or um, strategize as to how to how to bring about a little bit more understanding of where the problem is it, it's it's crucially important to understand where the problem is the problem is not um, what the what 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 the you know what the tax rate should be? The problem is not whether or not the bathrooms should be male and female or uh, trans or what uh, whatever. But the problem is so much deeper. Yes. That, like I said, it, we're 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 going to continue playing this game of whack-a-mole until until we until there's no one standing. Put an end to this completely. Yeah. So, 
anything on on that? Like it, it's it's have have you have you? This um, is very difficult. I it mean, is. Like, it is very difficult. So I, I, you, you notice, and I'm the, desperate the, the for it. The answer was very short. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's very hard to write about. <clears throat> That's right. Um, I think. I think I'm reasonably clear on the problem. Yes. Yes. Um, so the problem is diabetes mm. rather than the wounds, mm. right? <clears throat> and I think our problem is metaphysics, mm -hmm. right? The lack of confidence that there is anything standing over us. Um, and um, you, I, I, and, we, and we kind of got this problem because we were too confident in the past, right? So there's always a poetic element, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a <clears throat> an existential element rather than simply sort of, you know, ticking off boxes from the delivery downwards. But if you... What seems to have happened is that in rejecting the idea of receiving metaphysical truth and... Um, generating it ourselves, we have also lost a concept of the spiritual meaning. So it's you know I, I read Leotard and and um, uh, Foucault and Derrida and and uh, Judith Butler and these people have got really good criticisms of. Um, any kind of meaning they've got really good criticisms but they've got no meaning right um, and they can't afford to have it because their own criticisms would chew it up that's right <laughs> so so we're at a position where our lead thinkers are only negative right there's there's no positive meaning there's only unmeaning and therefore because there's only unmeaning the only moral thing is that there's that Anyone who has a sense of meaning should be wiped out. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm, um, yeah. So, <clears throat> I think the the reason why this is obviously bullshit is that if it was true, I wouldn't even be able to explain it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, the the reality of intelligibility is necessary to argue that intelligibility doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so. It, it's always self-destructive. And, and I think in the end, you can't have proof. You have to have faith and you have to have poesis based on faith towards a reality that you can never fully grasp, mm. right? Um, and I think Jung is doing something like that. I don't really know where he's going theologically. It seems a bit weird to me. <laughs> oh, uh, if if he doesn't, if, if if you read Jung and he doesn't seem weird to you, you haven't you haven't you haven't understood mm. the page of it. But the weird is true. Yes. Okay. Yes. So the, it's supposed to be. If you can understand God, that's not God, mm. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if, if he can fit inside our mm. head, well, we've made him up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's right. Oh, um, yeah. Right. Do we do we get it? Um, so the answer, I. I where I end up in that paper is I'm saying, well, 
it's up to people who do believe in metaphysics, who do believe in a truth, to try and do things differently. And you won't get any support and you'll get in trouble. Um, but unless we, unless such people sort of can come together mm, somehow mm -hmm. and have a go mm -hmm. at constructing meaningful, so like in, in politics, I don't know, how, how long have you been in Australia? How many? Nine years. Right, okay, so I've been here all my life mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's, it's a nice place. Don't yeah. But, but the, um, I, I was studying politics in the 1980s um, at uni in my young days and um, this was the era of the Hawke-Keating era when everyone was doing Rager and Thatcher and um, it was obvious at the time that globalization was going to be a disaster. Mm. It was obvious, right? At the time. If you, well, I was studying it, so it was always mm. <laughs> that that if you say, well, let's just um, take away all protections and uh, fly their mass to the, the 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 global markets and let them determine what happens with us, we're going to lose economic autonomy from our, over our country, right? It was obvious, obviously, right? Mm. But we were sold it <clears throat> on the basis that uh, um, this would make us all rich, right? There was no moral argument. It was mm -hmm. only a pragmatic consumer argument, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I can remember, I, I went to a Boyer lecture um, 1991 with Nick Greiner, who was the... Um, Premier of New South Wales at that time, mm -hmm. and a very smart guy, a Hungarian. Um, I've never, never met a Hungarian who wasn't smart. Interesting. <laughs> um, and they're, funny, but that's... <laughs> they're doing a lot of good things these days. Um, just from yeah, the yeah, governance. What, uh, interesting, interesting yeah. place. Um, but Nick Greiner gave a, a lecture called um, something like Politics in the Post-Ideological Age. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and what he was saying is that we don't really believe in left-wing or right-wing politics anymore. You know, you know, we don't believe in kind of, like in Australia, the left-wing is connected to the Catholic Church mm -hmm. and the Methodist Church and the Communist Party. Right? <laughs> well, what an interesting combination. And, um, but it, it had a sense of real justice-framed... Um, you know, justice for the poor and the worker, yes. concepts of moral commitment. It had that, right? Yes. And it kind of dropped them in the 1980s. Mm. And the Liberal Party used to be a much more conservative party embedded in kind of cultural Christian values and meanings. And it kind of dropped them in the 90s. And they're both just parties of pragmatism. So they're only interested in saying, well, the only thing that really matters is how much money everyone's got in their pocket. Mm. And then they can decide what's good for themselves. Right? So it's a totally atomized individualist and amoralized pragmatic politics. That's a very good word so, to describe it. Um, uh, the greatest criticism, I, I've, I have lost complete hope um, in the Labour Party in Australia, but the greatest criticism that I have towards, towards the Liberal Party, and the reason I criticize the Liberal Party is because it's the only one, uh, the, 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 the only political 
place that I see uh, room for um, redemption for, and uh, that's, that that might um, that may be naive, but the value you got to try somewhere. You got to try somewhere. <laughs> um, the the Liberal Party doesn't understand what it stands what it stands for anymore, no, no, and it no. does it, it it's it's worse than that. It doesn't understand what it should stand for and why it should stand for it. So that connection. So it, it, you could you could think of values as some sort of a uh, some sort of a lofty uh, concept, or you could think of them as something that if you dismiss, you are going to be screwed. And I believe the reason that we need to stick with certain values is because if we don't, we're going to be screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we are. And and. It doesn't. It doesn't look like like the um, the Liberal Party in in Australia or the um, Re Republicans in the state. It doesn't look to me like they are there anymore. It, I, that that mentality that that the reason that we stand for certain values is because if we dismiss them, this or that is going to happen to us. Just like the Jews in the um, the Old Testament would um, you know finger back at themselves every time something bad happened to them. They would be like, we must have done something wrong. We must have taken um, taken a a wrong step, um, but yeah, yeah, such yeah. is where we are. This really happened in the 1980s, mm. um, as I was studying politics. So it was. <laughs> mm. So that so that um, that was your first um, university degree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Political science. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then from that, um, you switched to philosophy. Uh, well, I did a social science degree with politics and and theology. Okay. Um, and philosophy, mm -hmm. um, but then I did honours in philosophy and then masters in theology and a doctorate in sociology. So. Sociology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, That's I, a... I did a doctorate in in philosophical theology under two sociologists because nobody else would let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, the sociology part would be a completely different podcast for itself. So you would have run um, sociological experiments and you would have... No, 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 no. I, I did my work on the, um, uh, the nature and meaning of faith. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but the great thing about... Uh, well, on Kierkegaard and Plato, really. But the, the sociologists didn't mind the Continentals, whereas the philosophy uh -huh. department was all very analytic and British. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't have uh, to get people to fill out questionnaires or... No, <laughs> no, I didn't do any of that. Just read stuff and wrote stuff. Right, okay, uh, very good. But, yeah, but, no, the, both... There is no real difference between left and right, right? So the, the, the Labour Party and, you, you know, the Liberal Party coalition are just sort of different ties, mm -hmm. different coloured ties mm -hmm. on the same sort of pragmatic, mm -hmm. electoral, financial... Mm. instrumentalism mm -hmm. and it's very similar in the US really I mean you know the the you don't get a lot of difference whether you have a Democrat or a Republican in in and um, what they have in common is much more frightening than what they have yeah. different you know? correct and the system just rolls on whoever you've got correct and uh, well Dr. Tyson I'm going to stop this so that we can eat dinner Fantastic, Will. Thank okay. you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.